Today we close out our series on the disappearance of Johnny Gosh. We'll discuss the visit Gosh's mom claims to have had with Johnny in March of 1997 and give our thoughts on some disturbing photos she was sent in 2006. Finally, we'll dive into the Franklin cover-up. I'm Mike. I'm Ian. And I'm Dave. If you thought the finale of this series would provide you some definitive answers, stick around. If you want to. But the facts surrounding this case remain as murky as the Loch Ness. This is Necronomapod. impressed you uh told us early on it was going to be three parts and look at us wrapping this up in three parts bingo you did a good researching it could go on forever (laughs) it could that's that's for sure alas we have many other things to to cover (laughs) in coming weeks like what mike anything good um yeah always good stuff okay cool great great (laughs) stuff coming up excellent So, all right, well, we got a lot to get into. This is a uh, jam-packed episode, so let's just dive right in. Last week, we introduced Paul Benashi and got into what he claims happened to Johnny Gosh and his involvement. We also introduced John DeCamp, former Nebraska legislator, and at the time in 1990 and 1991, he was working as a lawyer. We talked about last week how confusing the story is and how confusing it's going to get tonight. I found an error that I made last week. Last week, I said that John DeCamp was Paul Bonacci's defense lawyer regarding charges against Paul for sexually assaulting a child. Uh, that is wrong. I can't find exactly how or when John DeCamp actually came into contact with Paul Bonacci, but DeCamp didn't come into the picture at all until Paul was already serving his sentence in Omaha for molesting his cousin. John DeCamp was representing Paul Bonacci in a civil suit against a man named Larry King regarding the Franklin child sex allegations we're going to get into in this episode. It was during research for that civil representation that John DeCamp supposedly uncovered Paul Benashi's involvement in the Johnny Gosh disappearance to which Paul confessed and DeCamp approached Gosh's with that information. Glad we could clear that up. Well, because there's people that think that maybe Paul was trying to throw out some mitigating factors for his sentence maybe okay. to get a reduction or something. So that was already a done deal. Right. So where we left off on part two in March of 1997, Noreen Gosh was woken up around 2.30 a.m. by a knock at her apartment door. Waiting outside was her son, Johnny Gosh, now 27, alongside an unidentified man. What, what, what? <laughs> <laughs> so Noreen said she immediately recognized her son, who opened his shirt and showed her a birthmark on his chest. Noreen said, quote, we talked for about an hour and a half. He was with another man, but I have no idea who the person was. Johnny would look over to the other person for approval to speak. He didn't say where he was living or where he was going. In 2005, Noreen said, quote, The night that he came here, he was wearing jeans and a shirt and had a coat on because it was March. It was cold and his hair was long. It was shoulder length and it was straight and dyed black. Like Ian's emo hair back in the day. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
right around this time too no 2005 actually it lines up maybe it was me out there. maybe it was you <laughs> maybe you did a dmt yeah <laughs> showed up at noreen's house <laughs> so you just talked to him for an hour and a half and then let him leave did she call the police did she do anything when when did she say this happened so this happened this happened in 1997 so like how long until she told people that this happened? She told people this happened in 1999 mm. because she was pretty much forced to, or she felt she was forced to. She told everybody about this during the Paul Benashi civil trial. Okay. One of the questions she was asked, have you ever seen your son, Johnny? And she said, yeah, since his disappearance. And she said, yeah, I saw him in 1997 and told this story. So a little odd that she would have been hush about something like this happening. She said it was to protect him, that he had to stay in within this ring of working for pedophiles. I don't think it happened. I think <sighs> it's it was a stretch, right? I think it was probably a very vivid dream that became a reality for her. If I had to guess. I'm sure she wanted to believe it was true. Yeah. Yeah. Seems unlikely. It's It starts to make not make sense. I don't understand why she said it in trial either. Like it was her conscious wouldn't let her perjure herself. But mm. you know what I mean? I don't understand. She could have just not said that. No one would ever know. It's in her yeah, mind. Right, it's, right. There's no witness. She felt like she was denying him or something by by not saying it. Yeah, that's strange. I, I do not believe that this incident occurred. I think it might have been a dream, maybe, or something. Maybe something like that, yeah. By this time, Noreen and John Sr. had gotten divorced. It seemed like John Sr. had accepted uh, Occam's razor that Johnny was kidnapped, probably by a lone pedophile and murdered, maybe like a Dean Coral-type person or John Wayne Gacy. And Noreen was chasing down every lead, which just goes further and further down the rabbit hole and ultimately never comes up with anything concrete. And it just sounded like John senior. It's like, I can't keep doing it. It's got to wear on you day to day. You can't live under those yeah. hallucinations. And that, yeah, I'm sure it tears you apart. And when one parent's just ready to accept it and move on and the other one's spending every waking moment and that's going to tear a relationship apart. Yeah. Not possible to live with someone like that. I wouldn't think. On either end. Sure. Yeah. If you're the mom, you're like, how are you giving up hope? Like, this is our son. And if you're the dad, you're like, we need to move on with our lives. Yeah. You can understand both. So getting into this this rabbit hole, start in 1917, a Catholic priest named Father Edward Flanagan started a boy's home while he worked at the Diocese of Omaha. I bet he did. <laughs> <laughs> on a $90 loan, he started out with five young men, providing them a place to live and resources to survive. In 1921, Father Flanagan bought Overlook Farm on the outskirts of Omaha, Nebraska, and moved his boys home there. The move from Overlook Farm was a major step in Father Flanagan's plan to create a developed community to be a safe place for boys in need. In time, it became known as the Village of Boys Town. By the 1930s, hundreds of boys lived at the village, which ended up including a school, dormitories, and administrative buildings. The boys elected their own government, including a mayor, council, and commissioners. In 1936, the community of Boystown 
was designated as an official village in the state of Nebraska, which it still is today. The last census in 2020 has it at 440 people living there. I had never heard of this before. Mm-mm. Interesting history here associated with this place. Boys Town is also a very big business. The last financial information that I could find was from 2019. Uh, currently, Father Stephen E. Bowes is the president and national executive director, and he gets $269,000 a year, which isn't the highest. Father John K. Arch, the executive vice president of healthcare, makes 453000 a year. This is all tax-free because it's all church-related. That is $453,000 more than Declan makes a year. (laughs) (laughs) And he still has to pay taxes. He's running and he's paying us to work here. In 2019, they reported an income of just under $600 million, which they spent $460 million for their salaries, programs for kids, and fundraising. So there's a tax-free profit of $135 million. That tax-free profit has paid off throughout the years because their reported assets are $1.6 billion. What in the fuck? <laughs> are there other locations? It's not just these 400 people, right? It's all over the place. Yeah, they have, uh, they have a campus in Florida. I think there was mm. four or five other ones. But those were fairly recent. You know, and there's like heads of this place... Father Flanagan started it, but there's been, I think it's currently on its fourth priest running the whole place. Amazing. I I actually was reading about it. It said that their fundraising practices drew scrutiny in 1972 when the, uh, the Omaha sun that the local paper were started investigating them after a tip from local Omaha businessman, Warren buffet. You heard that guy? I think he started hometown buffet. (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah. Great place. There's a whole, like, he started, like, Ponderosa was under right, that. all those places. Buffet umbrella. Hmm. <laughs> no, but Warren Buffett tipped them off that something shady was going on there, so they uh, they had an endowment of $191 million in 1971, which would be big enough to put it at number 230 in the Fortune 500 list. That is insane. When you're not paying taxes, it helps. Yeah, it does help, doesn't mm-hmm. it? What's your investment strategy? Not paying any taxes. <laughs> taxes? Oh, that's good. No, it doesn't apply to me. <laughs> they made a lot of money on like the phone call type of donations. The like cold calling people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it was like. Hi, would you like to donate to local boys? <laughs> like, was, that on a, was that on a Sunday show or a, uh, a bonus show where we talked about how our Taco Bell's getting. I don't remember. Or. We're, Oh, no, that was just text. That was us talking to each other. No, but we did it. We talked talked about about it on the show. Did did we? Just a quick recap. Our local Taco Bell, like, is always like, would you like to round up to the nearest dollar for, you know, blah, 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 charity? And at this point, they're just like, for your community (laughs) or for charity? They don't say anything anymore. To help your community? That doesn't mean anything. (laughs) Just just made that up. Lie to me and just give me something. At least put an organization behind it. George Costanza at least made up the human fund on Seinfeld. <laughs> he at least made the effort. I was at the, where was I at? The Under Armour outlet store a couple weeks mm-hmm. ago. Would you like to round up for kids sports? <laughs> I go, what do you, that doesn't mean anything. You can't just say that. That's a made up thing. That Get out the, of here. That could be the nickname for your fat drunk roommate. Like, I don't know what I'm, what I'm paying for. Get the hell out of here. Like to round up for kids jock straps. <laughs> now we're talking. <laughs> Protect the balls. 
another way that they make money is by making investments, which is a big chunk of their money. In 2019, they made $157 million from investments, which is crazy that I feel like investments should be taxed, but they're not even taxed. It's just like a free for all. Mm. Yeah, that that's a that's a racket, boy. Starting a church, starting a religion, Let's get into the church business. We should. Why not? We really should. It's the best scam in history. <laughs> the Church of Namapod. <laughs> yeah, if you give me money, um, I'm gonna tell God that you were cool and he'll let you into heaven when you're gone. But you'll be dead, so you can't ever disprove it. So uh, write me a check. <laughs> a great business model. Fucking genius. Send Declan out every service with the collection plate. <laughs> <laughs> we'll start sending him door to door like Jehovah's oh, we Witness. We will. We can expand his hours. It doesn't cost <laughs> us anything more. What the hell was it? The, he'll be our flirty fish. Yeah. He's our, he's our flirty fisherman. He has to go fuck people to get him into our call. Well, we don't, we don't tell him to do that. We just make sure he knows that if he wants a place to sleep at night, he better come back with at least $500 a day. How he gets that money is not his ass will be out on the street. His ass will be doing something. <laughs> Again, we don't condone that. We don't ask him to. But what he does is what he does. <laughs> We're off to a good start with this church. So in the in all those investments that they made, one institution that Boys Town invested in was the Franklin Community Federal Credit Union. Lawrence E. King Jr. is the guy at the center of the Franklin scandal which started out as a financial scandal, but then blew up into all the craziness we're going to be talking about. King said that he was offered a job singing for the New York Metropolitan Opera in the 1960s, but that he decided to go into business ownership. It's like, sorry, opera's not going to be for me. I'm going to go into business ownership instead. <laughs> Figaro, Figaro, Figaro. He's in the beginning of that documentary we'll talk about. Uh, is it conspiracy of silence yeah it's like a video from him singing at a oh nice singing the national anthem at a gop conference thing mm. he's got that real deep opera kind of voice excellent i like opera music i do too it's interesting it's just odd how someone people would start singing like that isn't it you mean like how it was discovered or they're just that they're able to do it like talented well both but like how did that style of music develop where people started singing like that I don't know. It's always fun and interesting. I've never been to the opera. It's a bucket list thing for me. I've, like to go I've never been to the opera. I feel hoity-toity for a night. I would go. If we get box seats with little the eyeglasses and stuff. Be like the, <laughs> the ones you know, like, Goddamn right. <laughs> be like the two from the Muppets. What are their names? The <laughs> yeah. two that sat on the balcony. they're just bitching the whole time, all angry and cranky. <laughs> Private box, but the bathroom doesn't even work. <laughs> The bartender only comes up here once a, <laughs> once an act. King ended up working for banks, and then in 1970, he became head of the Franklin Credit Union, which its aim was to provide consumer loans and other financial services in Omaha's minority neighborhoods. At one point, he was active in politics as a Democrat, but he switched sides and became a prominent member of the GOP and former chairman of the National Black Republican Council. A lot of his popularity and stuff came from this theory of pull yourself up by the bootstraps stuff he was talking about, rejecting social programs offered by the government and doing it on your own. We had Declan's uh, food stamps canceled. <laughs> we also buy into that philosophy. 
Like if you're hungry, you'll find a way to get food. <laughs> uh, you know. Go out there and put the hustle in, man. Bootstraps. King made the Omaha community believe that he worked with charities and nonprofit organizations, including Boys Town, to deposit money with Franklin Credit Union as a way of improving Omaha's black community. Another part of King's public persona was the fact that he worked off a $16,200 a year salary. You bragging about that? He's bragging how little he made? I think he's yes. bragging, yeah, like, I do it all for this. Hmm. I'm not sure that's the sick burn you think it is. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> In 1978, the National Credit Union Administration raised concerns about King. He lived a very lavish lifestyle for a guy that only made 16000 a year, and they wondered how. Multiple Nebraskan members of Congress, both Democrat and Republican, publicly shut down the NCUA. They said King was, quote, a young man of integrity and one who has rendered great service to the total community. Fast forward to November 4th, 1988, the FBI and Omaha police raided King's offices and arrested him for embezzling $38 million from the Franklin Credit <laughs> Union. $38 million. Guess that's how you live on sixteen grand a year. Yeah, right. How do you live on sixteen grand a year? You embezzle $38 million. <laughs> <laughs> Those numbers work fine. You yeah. can live quite comfortably. Yeah. In 1976, so two years before the NCUA raised concerns about King, his chief accountant caught King using money from Franklin to pay his personal bills. Instead of reporting King, his accountant, Thomas Harvey Jr., started paying his bills as well. <laughs> can't, be, can't beat him, join him, right? <laughs> By the end of the year, Franklin was short $400,000. By 1981, King had salesmen selling certificates of deposit at super high interest rates, like astronomically high. As money kept coming in, more and more deposits were needed to pay interest on deposits and keep up with the life that King was living, which the selling CDs at unusually high interest rates had a hard time even keeping up with how much he was spending. A good example from the court documents is $146,000 a year for landscaping around his mansion. <laughs> My God. <laughs> All while he's... You know, that's like full time landscapers on staff. Yeah, must be. Like, what, what else could it be? What, else, what do you need to do every single day for that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and he's out there telling everybody to pull yourselves up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I've been on a kick recently where <clears throat> almost every night I'm buying one or two books off Amazon, and I've been like, eh, maybe I should cut back. After reading that, I'm not doing so bad. <laughs> Just buying a couple books a night. Not spending 146000 on landscaping. So I'm going to keep on keeping on. Keep on keeping on. I officially own a book, a biography on every president now. Wow. Sport Impressive. The reading of all of them. I think I'm on 10. I've mentioned on this show that was my goal, yeah. I, think. Yeah. I think. I'm on my 10th right. president. One who might be mentioned later in this episode. Stick around. <laughs> How can you not stick around with that exciting clue? <laughs> it's going to be a big womp womp when we just touch on his name very briefly and then move on because it's a big nothing. A month after Franklin Credit Union was raided and shut down, so December of 1988, Nebraska Senator Lauren Schmidt comes seemingly out of nowhere with child sexual abuse allegations. The Washington Post reported from back then and said, quote, in June 1988, a social worker at a mental hospital in Omaha reported allegations of possible child abuse to the Nebraska Foster Care Review Board, 
an agency that monitors the placement of several thousand children in the state. The board subsequently asked Omaha police and the state attorney general to investigate possible child exploitation, a child prostitution ring, and inappropriate activities by Larry King. One teenage girl, according to a published account, said that she had sat naked at parties and that men engaged in sexual activity, although penetration was not allowed. Another girl told of witnessing a murder. Just like that stupid sign at the petting zoo, no penetration allowed. <laughs> Fuck that sign. <laughs> I, think it, I think that's just a recommendation, though. No, I mean, it's, it's not a, a hard and fast yeah. rule. <laughs> you know, it's just like, just don't act a fool and you know all right it's like drinking at the beach just yeah as long as you're not the real fool, yeah. the cops aren't gonna <laughs> i did i didn't know that thank you for clearing that up <laughs> fucking animals at the in the ass of the petting zoo is like drinking at the beach like you know don't make a thing of it and, and cops are gonna leave you alone fine. Yeah, right. just you know don't draw extra attention put it in a soul cup when you <laughs> right <laughs> Put a Jimmy hat on. You put put your beer in your solo cup and then put your Jimmy hat on. Once <laughs> Maybe both at the same time if you're drinking at the petting zoo. Maybe so. Then in January of 1988, again seemingly out of nowhere, John DeCamp released what is known as the DeCamp Memo to the public. And it's not like it was just sent to members of the media. This was sent to 10,000 homes of everyday people in eastern Nebraska. You hear that, Declan? <laughs> 10,000 homes. <laughs> First, as a citizen who strongly pushed for the Franklin investigation and in fact offered suggested language for the Senate resolution that triggered the investigation, I find that what is occurring by both the press and institutions of government nothing short of criminal. The press quietly and carefully covers up either through ignorance or artifice, while the various institutions of government repeat the old Commonwealth state security game of let the statue of limitations run on those that should and could be immediately prosecuted and investigate and study and ask for more information. Why? Because of the personalities involved. The World Herald and Lincoln Journal want to know where I get information on Franklin. Get serious. A reporter has to be deaf, dumb, blind, and corrupt not to know the names of the personalities involved and the scope of the allegations. Stop on any street corner in Omaha, go into any coffee shop, have a drink in any bar in Omaha, or if you're lazy, walk around the Capitol Rotunda in Lincoln and simply listen to the discussions. Here's what you will learn. Number one, the allegations are that the most powerful and rich public personalities of the state are central figures in the investigation. Number two, these include former Omaha World Herald editor Harold Anderson, Larry King of the Dead Franklin Credit Union, former Omaha Police Chief Robert Wadman, media personality Peter Citron, A.K. Sar Ben Financier, and bluest of the blue bloods, Alan Bayer, for starters. Number three, that the allegations are that these individuals were some of the centerpieces in a coordinated program of child abuse, drug abuse, and abuse of their various public positions of trust and honor. Number four, that prosecutors who should be prosecuting are afraid to prosecute for one reason or another, and that the public itself is rapidly losing faith in its fundamental institutions of government as a result of this perceived cover-up, whether real or imagined. What do I personally believe? I damned well believe the allegations. Now, having said these things and reported these allegations, am I afraid of being sued by these powerful personalities? Absolutely not. 
Remember that rule you newspaper folk live and die by and crucify others by? If you have forgotten, let me repeat it for you. Truth is a defense. And since these are all public figures, we also know that absent any malice, and I have none, truth is definitely a defense. No, I do not fear a lawsuit. I fear, just like any alleged child victims in this bizarre tragedy, that the rich and the powerful will use their positions of power and control of institutions of government to shut up those who would speak out and bring things to a head. Some wild allegations he's making there. That is a lot said. The Franklin conspiracy involving child sex allegations goes all the way up to President George H.W. Bush. If you read enough about it online which it's just impossible to do in one episode. So we're just going to stay in Omaha. There gets to be crazy claims, and we'll talk about it at the very end a little bit with a guy named Ted Gunderson, but there even starts to get into MK Ultra stuff. But a lot of stuff story. leads back to MK Ultra, doesn't it? Everything. Mm-hmm. All <laughs> Everything kinds of crazy every shit. conspiracy theory ever goes back to MK <laughs> Ultra. It's a solid excuse sometimes. Yeah, uh, some of them might be Because it right. is true. Yeah. So you can link... You're like, well, if they did that, then I don't put it past them doing this as well. Yeah. So in short, the purpose for Larry King to be running a child sex ring was blackmailing politicians, government officials, businessmen, and media figures with proof of them having sexually abused children. Larry King allegedly was doing this on behalf of the CIA. Another thing that we can't dive real deep into is the Boys Town Connection, The claim is that Boys Town was supplying boys into this sex ring, which that is not far-fetched sounding. There's a lot of abuse that goes on in the Catholic Church. Uh, Yeah. A lot of allegations. A lot. For a long time. Yeah. And a a lot of allegations regarding Boys Town outside of this stuff. Okay. I'm sure that doesn't surprise anybody. Well, Mike, you're reading that book about H.W. Bush, and he was uh, once the CIA director. Did he detail mm-hmm. these kids he used to have sex with in the, in the book you're reading? Or Incidentally, did he not gotten to that there part was yet? not a chapter on that. <laughs> oh. no, I am long past that. He, okay. he is now just was elected president, oh, so okay. he would have covered. Right. It's not an autobiography. It's a biography. And, okay. and there was not a chapter covered ca- called the Franklin cover-up. Okay. Well, the editor maybe cut it for brevity, but maybe. Nothing about doing satanic rituals on children. There was not anything. If you look at the back <laughs> index, you're not going to find satanic rituals to go. You know, it's not in there. That Read I my lips. No satanic rituals. <laughs> <laughs> on August 21st, 1989, private investigator Gary Caradori was brought on as the lead investigator for the Franklin Committee, which was put together to get to the bottom of these claims being made. Gary Caradori had a list of 21 potential victims to talk to, but he was only able to interview four of them at length. Alicia Owen, Troy Bonner, Danny King, and Paul Benashi. Caradori never got to interview the rest because on July 11th, 1990, Gary died in a plane crash along with his eight-year-old son. Mm. He was flying. It was a personal plane. That's not unusual, right? Like little Cessnas going down. It happens. seems to happen a lot. It's suspicious, though. Yeah, it's it's suspicious. It's enough to make you go, hmm. There's no, like, solid evidence or anything that he, that there was foul play involved in it, but there's people that believe in the, the Franklin conspiracy will say yeah, right. 100% he was killed. 
like that his plane just disintegrated midair. They weren't ever able to locate his briefcase. Yeah. And there's people like like there's an eyewitness account originally that said that that saw the plane crash said that they saw like a a flash of light, Mm. but then that was taken out of the report. So people say that they're hiding the fact that there was like a little bomb on there or something. Interesting. Was there even really a plane? Because it's as we all know, at 9-11, there were no planes. That was just explosions in the towers. Just saying. Wow. Wake up, people. Really uncovered something here. Wake up, people. <laughs> that is one of those crazy conspiracy theories, that there were no planes. What was, was I watching on TV? That that was fake footage. Oh. It's, I'm not saying there's anything to this, but there are people that believe there were no planes. Hmm. That's what they wanted you to see. And all the people that were on the plane? I don't have the answers for this. I'm just saying this is what people think. Crisis actors, pal. Yeah, okay. <laughs> all right. Uh, before we move on, I'd like one point of clarification. You mentioned Troy Bonner. Mm-hmm. His name is spelled B-O-N-E-R. Are we certain uh, that's pronounced Bonner? I was giving him the benefit of the doubt. Looks like Troy Boner to me. <laughs> it is very much how it's spelled. Spelled Boner. <laughs> Do you want me to call him Troy Boner? I'm just thing? asking the questions that we, everyone else is asking at home right now. Do we even get into him again? I don't think we do, really. Yeah. Do we? Yeah. <laughs> Going forward, Mr. Boner. So people that believe in the conspiracy theories say that Gary was killed on purpose because he was on his way home from Chicago, where he was allegedly given photographs to support some of the sex abuse claims. Senator Lawrence Smith even publicly questioned whether or not Gary's death was related to the Franklin investigation. So it's not a complete tinfoil hat thing. There were public officials questioning this publicly. Let's just say if a professional wanted to take that plane down, you would never know it because they know what they're doing and they wouldn't have left the trace. And I'm not saying that this is out of the realm of possibility. It's as yeah, it's absolutely possible. Mm. When I was sitting here writing this outline, I was like hard writer's block, just staring at my screen and reading stuff. I think the best way to do this is just do it in a timeline order. But just the ones that are relevant to Johnny Gosh, like I cut out half of the Franklin cover up timeline in this. You have to. It's another whole story. That's just not yeah, that's not what this can't. show's about. This is you know, we would dilute the whole Johnny Gosh story if we got into all that. And that's what ends up happening even in this. We're not even talking about Johnny until the end of this episode yeah. briefly again. He's lost in this story now. But if we didn't get into this, we'd have people coming out of the woodwork about why we didn't talk about it. So because as you you can't have a conversation about Johnny Gosh without bringing up Paul Benashi, and then you have to go down this whole sure. rabbit hole. Um, so let's do a little rabbit hole. So we'll get into this timeline, then we'll get into Alicia Owen's perjury trial and Paul Benashi's civil suit. See you next week. <laughs> December 1980, Paul Benashi says that he met Larry King at a sex party where there were satanic rituals being carried out that involved torture and sex with children. August of 81, Benashi says that he began going out of town with Alan Bear where he would help Bear find new kids to be used by Bear and others at those satanic sex parties. 82, Paul Benashi said that he was flown to Bohemian Grove to participate in satanic orgies. September 82, Johnny Gosh went missing. Paul Benashi says that he was the one that helped lure him in. 
83, Danny King, who is an alleged victim, says that he met Larry King and Alan Bear at a party. August 1983, Troy Bonner says that he met Alan Bear through a friend at Twin Towers Apartments. Hey, Mike just talked about the Twin Towers. Coincidence? Mm, I don't know. <laughs> Were there any planes seen here? Mm. Probably not. I'm just saying. It's now two sets of Twin Towers that we haven't mm. seen, had actual planes at. That's That rabbit's hole widens some more. <laughs> September 1984, Larry King allegedly took 15 to 20 boys from Boys Town, Omaha to Chicago for a satanic sex party. There's a big jump in years, but it's things that we've already covered earlier in this episode, like the DeCamp memo, that kind of stuff. January 30th, 1990, when Attorney General Robin Spire called for a grand jury to be presented all the evidence and determine whether or not there was enough to move forward with sex abuse charges against Larry King and other people. March 1990, the Douglas County Grand Jury started the Franklin abuse trial. July 11th, 1990, Gary Caridori and his son died uh, in that plane crash in Aurora, Illinois. July 23rd, 1990, Paul Benashi was indicted on three counts of perjury. Also on July 23rd, Alicia Owens, alleged victim, was indicted on eight counts of perjury. Alleged victims Troy Bonner and Danny King recanted their testimony and what they said in the taped interviews with Gary Caridori. That's why they weren't charged with perjury. The next day, July 24th, 1990, the grand jury threw out the Franklin case, calling it, quote, a carefully crafted hoax, but didn't say who created that hoax or why they created it. Leaving more questions than answers. And like I said, we just cut that probably more than half, but just to keep it on track with Johnny Gosh. Yeah. It's got to be relevant. There's so much more with the boys town thing. And there's these foster parents that end up, you know, some credible stuff with them mm. and the boys town angle. But it doesn't really affect the Johnny Gosh story. Yeah. Let's get into Alicia Owens perjury trial, because I think it answers a lot of questions. Alicia Owens was born on September 18th, 1968. So according to the allegations, she would have been around 15 years old when she was brought into this ring. Alicia Owen was arrested in September of 1988 for writing bad checks. And after a couple of days, she was released with a trial date pending. The following month on October 20th, Alicia checked herself into St. Joseph Center for Mental Health, where she stayed until November 30th. In the first week of December, Alicia attempted to commit suicide and was sent back to St. Joseph's until December 16th. During her time at St. Joseph's, Alicia met a man named Michael Casey, who claimed to be there undercover, posing as a patient, but he was really a New York Times journalist looking to expose the, quote, real Franklin scandal. Remember, at the time, it's only financial right now. There's no child abuse allegations when these two supposedly meet. When Alicia got out of St. Joseph's on December 16th, Michael Casey had already been out and contacted Alicia to see if she wanted to move in with him. Of course. What else would you do? <laughs> Part of that moving in would consist of Casey training her to be his assistant, helping her with his New York Times journalism, for which, like we just said, he's not a New York Times journalist. Alicia ended up living with Casey for about two or three weeks. 
the alleged victims of the Franklin scandal were interviewed at length multiple times and by multiple agencies. One of the interviews Alicia did was with FBI Special Agent Matt Mott. Alicia told Agent Mott that during the two or three weeks that she lived with Casey, he flooded her with information regarding the Franklin Credit Union. And every time that Casey asked her if she knew anything about sexual abuse happening with Franklin, she said no. Casey also talked at length about Boys Town being involved. You know, people say the FBI is lying. Mm-hmm. This is all a big conspiracy against Alicia. But this is what the grand jury found. During the investigation, search warrants were obtained, and part of the items seized were a collection of diaries and notes that were in Alicia's possession. Michael Casey kept in contact with Alicia while she was in prison for the bad checks and wrote to her on March 15, 1990, and told her that he was working with a movie producer in L.A. on exposing the truth behind the Franklin scandal. You're too late. I've already purchased the rights to that scandal. (laughs) Sight unseen. (laughs) Casey told Alicia that he would send her a copy of the script to look over and guaranteed, quote, a job as a consultant and researcher when she finished her prison sentence. Furthering this, a friend of Alicia's testified that in January of 1990, Alicia said that she was working as an investigative assistant researching allegations of sexual abuse going on at Franklin Credit Union. Well, this is uh, interesting. So this guy's making this whole thing up, essentially feeding her. What? What do you think? Like clues? Like what's the what's the point of this? Especially not knowing who the hell this guy is. Yeah. What's he trying? Why her? I, I don't know. Yeah. I, I think there's a piece of evidence that I found regarding Michael Casey that we'll get into in a bit. I, maybe there's like some mental illness here and maybe that's all it is, huh? Yeah. And like mm. stirring up stuff or trying to make a name for himself, it fake almost, it till you make it kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Maybe so. It almost seems like she was targeted though. Like he wasn't, he was, he was undercover in that hospital and told to start like putting the stuff in her head. It seems know, it deliberate. Just, it seems weird. Yeah. That this would all just kind of happen like this. Hmm. Like just by happenstance, she meets this guy at the mental hospital and now he's she's he's asking her to move in and keeping in contact while she's in prison and then filling her head with all this. I don't know why. But is that something a mentally ill person would do? Become attached to this person and kind of just make it up as he goes along? Maybe. Maybe so. I don't know. It's just something about this just seems a little different. It, it kind of reminds me of Marshall Applewhite and Bonnie Nettles. Remember, he was... He was in the mental institution at the time yeah. as a patient. Yeah. She was the nurse. Yeah. Yeah. Arguably worse off than he was. And she's whispering in his ear about aliens while he's the patient. That is, uh, <laughs> that's, that's true. That's a good analogy. Also, while Alicia was in prison, Gary Caridori, the lead investigator for the Franklin committee visited her. Alicia would go on to testify for the grand jury when she asked Caridori how he found her, he told her that he found her by hearing the name Alicia off the streets, as the quote, and then running her name through a police database. Really? But in the same March 15th letter that Casey said that he was working with a movie producer, he said, quote, I also know and feel that promises were made before I ever gave Gary your name and location. He assured me that if your info checked out, 
you would receive favorable consideration and protection outside of a prison environment. I feel most responsible if promises were made to you and not kept. Yeah, I'm not even sure what to say at this point. Alicia testified that she had met Troy Bonner and Danny King in August of 1983 at a party being thrown by Larry King at his apartment in the Twin Towers apartment complex in Omaha. Alicia said that a young man named Richard Hubble, who lived at Boys Town, took her to the party. From there, Alicia said that she was entrenched in this sex ring and attended multiple parties at Larry King's Twin Tower apartment. Alicia also testified that the Omaha Chief Police, Robert Wadman, and Harold Anderson, publisher of the Omaha World Herald, abused children at these parties. Richard Hubble testified that he had met Alicia at a teen dance in the summer of 83, but that was it. Never saw her again. Hubble said that he never had been to the Twin Towers apartments ever, like not even in the parking lot. Bill Gehrig, a friend of Alicia's that testified about her working with Michael Casey, also testified that he was with Alicia when she first met Troy Bonner, and it wasn't in 1983, it was in 1988. Gehrig also gave a specific location, a bar called The Run, which Troy Bonner later corroborated after he recanted his original testimony that he gave to Gary. Oh, this is all over the place. Oh, it sure is. <laughs> this is why I sat there and just stared at my computer screen for a long yeah, time. Like, how am I yeah. going to make this into a story? I get it. Yeah. Alicia testified at length and on her videotaped interview with Gary Caridori about the bulk of the sexual abuse done to her. Um, was done by Omaha Chief of Police Robert Wadman. She said that sometime in September of 83, before her 15th birthday, she was molested by Chief Wadman at a Twin Towers party. According to Alicia, this kicked off of a pattern of abuse where Chief Wadman would pick her up once or twice a month on Wednesdays and drive her to a motel in Council Bluffs, Iowa, where he would molest her. This ended in September of 84 when Alicia got pregnant, which she said the father was Chief Wadman. Oh, my goodness. Did Michael Casey know John DeCamp? I don't know. I Googled, That's what I feel is the missing part here. I Googled their names together like every way I possibly could, mm. and I couldn't find anything yeah. putting those two together. It. I don't believe this Michael Casey guy just came out of nowhere. Right, like he's connected yeah. to something. It seems hard to believe. Did he just meet like an impressionable woman and talk her into something like we know this happened. We if you can just say that it happened to you, it, it'll allow us to break this case open. Something like that, where he convinced her to say all these things that I think I lean more towards something like that than just Yeah. Not than just a random not yeah. targeted yeah. type thing at least at this point that's what i'm leaning towards but she knew like the bonner guy and like these people knew each other so there's links to all these different people somehow yeah they all knew each other yeah so it's just not out of the blue right which targeted yeah look we're not gonna solve this whole spider web but it's, <laughs> it's something going on you know, we have a good track record, though. We solved John Bonet, <laughs> clear as day. What have you done for me lately? I'm pretty confident. That was several years ago. <laughs> I'm pretty confident we solved Casey Anthony, right? She did it. I think we confirmed that. Well, everyone out there thinks she didn't, but we solved that. Uh, so, I don't know. That's two on our record in four years. That ain't bad. 
It really isn't. It's more bad. than most police departments, pal. <laughs> it's better than most Dean Cora police. They weren't solving. <laughs> they weren't doing any crime solving down there. Wasn't it even this one in part one where they're like, oh, got to wait three days. 72 hours. Yeah. yeah. All right. And then that fucking cop gets arrested at Target for stealing like women's panties or something. Blank cassette tapes. Oh, that's it. <laughs> okay. eh, same thing. Chief Wadman testified that he had met. You Larry. sure it's not Wadman? Wadman. <laughs> well, that's, that's his hip hop name. <laughs> Chief Wadman testified that he had met Larry King while participating in events hosted by the Omaha chapter of the NAACP. Chief Wadman said that he spoke at a NAACP meeting that was held at the Twin Towers apartment complex, but Larry King was not there for that meeting. Chief Wadman provided three separate DNA samples, which were sent to three separate labs, all of which came back that Chief Wadman was not the father of Alicia's child. Mm. You are not the father. Speaking of that, <laughs> I saw why Mari went out of business while he retired. They have over-the-counter DNA paternity tests. Oh. I saw him the other day at the store. Wow. Well, that's not fun. Yeah, so I'm like, oh, that's why Mari quit. When you give that technology to the masses, nothing good can come of it. <laughs> Put Mori out of business. Right. <laughs> that ruins everybody else's life. What $80. To, what are you supposed to watch God now at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, Ian? <laughs> you think Wadman's first album was called Blowing Wads? <laughs> Blowing Wads. I hope it was. <laughs> Redman and Wadman collaboration. <laughs> Fuck yeah, no, dude. We got Method Man in there, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Alicia testified that Chief Wadman was in shape and had no scars. In reality, Chief Wadman had been shot while on duty in 1973. He underwent bone graft surgeries that left a very large scar running along his left forearm, like all the way from his elbow to his wrist. To replace that arm bone, bone was taken from his right hip, which left another very large and distinct scar. This is not somebody you're going to say, huh, no scars. Yeah, right. This would be like if I had to describe you to the police and I was like, yeah, they had no tattoos. Yeah, right. No distinguishing marks on their body. (laughs) There's more evidence that debunked the original claims from Alicia, but they involve people's names that we have not used in this episode. It'll just muddy it up even more. But the one that I think is the most damning of all was that Larry King never rented or owned an apartment at Twin Towers. Like there's no record of him having any involvement with those with that apartment complex. Well, the FBI erased the records, obviously. It could have. Yeah, they could have. Boom, solved. He could have rented it in another person's name, I guess. But Mm. you just talked yourself out of it, pal. Are you talking to me or him? Him. Okay. You looked at me again and I was like, I didn't say anything. No one in DeCamp's memo had anything to do with the Twin Towers or anything like that besides Police Chief Wadman meeting there with the NAACP Mm. ones. Well, I tell you, Alicia got like nine sentenced to nine to 25 years in prison, which seems, I don't know, excessive. It's a lot. It is a lot. There might be a little bit of payback yeah the powerful people she was if she was lying yeah yeah because exactly you know if this is all a lie then yeah that chief wadman guy's life is just thrown under the bus Mm -hmm. i'm not saying it's not worthy of prison time i know the 25 year sentence is more longer than you know mr larry king got for embezzling 38 million dollars 
Yeah, he got 15, and I don't think he stayed in for the full 15. Mm. I think she served about four and a half is what I remember reading. So, all's well that ends well. <laughs> four years, what's that matter? You're fine. <laughs> she paid her dues to society. But yeah, I guess if that you're the chief and, you know, it's a lot bigger deal than maybe we're making it out to be. Yeah. So yeah, if she's lying, fuck you, man. And it's not even the fact that the Twin Towers that Larry King never owned or rented an apartment there. The police chief gave three different DNA samples. I bet he did, pervert. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I don't think, I mean, you could fake that too. I got, you can fucking fake anything, but whose jizz was it? Don't look at me. It wasn't mine. So your name's wad man. And you (laughs) didn't provide your own jizz sample. (laughs) When I was digging for info on Michael Casey, like trying to figure out if him and John DeCamp were connected or anything, I found some evidence that he's really good at inserting himself into high profile cases um, mm. even fooling a real reporter that he was acquainted with. Um, New York Magazine published a story on November 15th, 1976, detailing a scam that Michael Casey had ran on the LA Times regarding the Patty Hearst saga. It was actually a piece that was all about people like Michael Casey fooling the media. I bet that's entertaining. Mm. I think I'm going to have to read that. I'll send you a link to it. Yeah, I like to read that. So Patty Hearst was that granddaughter of William Randolph Hearst who was abducted by the SLA, the Symbionese Liberation Army, and held captive and then ended up robbing banks with them and stuff. So she got convicted of bank robbery, even though she claims she was just a hostage and being forced to do it. There's some arguments of brainwashing there. And yeah, stuff. yeah, absolutely. MK Ultra, probably. I bet you if you Google their name, Patty Hearst, MK Ultra, something's <laughs> going to come up. <laughs> So Carter commuted her sentence and then Clinton pardoned her. Look at that. Nice guy. I made her tug my asshole for that pardon, <laughs> let me tell you. <laughs> yeah, Jim Jones spoke out about about this whole situation in public, but then there's recordings behind the scenes that he was about the, the SLA. I'm sure he was. Yeah. He was a big fan of how they were doing stuff. <laughs> big fan. They had their posters up on his wall. <laughs> Most of them died in a shootout with L.A. police, I believe. They smoked them. So here's part of that article from New York Magazine. The story that caused the most discussion in the L.A. Times office involved a somewhat more notorious woman than Jean Taylor, Patty Hearst. Hearst was still at large in the spring of 1975 when 31-year-old Michael Casey walked into the L.A. Times city room and told reporter Dave Smith that Patty might be willing to talk to him. Smith had known Casey casually for four or five years, and preposterous though it sounded, he was inclined to believe Casey's story that Patty, disguised by plastic surgery, had been helping with the evacuation of Vietnamese refugees in Saigon. She now hoped, Casey said, that if she told the world through the LA Times of her heroic humanitarianism efforts, federal authorities might offer some leniency in exchange for her surrender. Smith took Casey's story to his editors, and they decided Casey should be interrogated thoroughly by a special task force of four reporters and an editor assigned specifically to investigate Hearst's kidnapping and its aftermath. Casey passed the test easily, pouring forth trivial details the Times team was convinced no one but they and someone close to Patty could possibly know. 
The reporters checked Casey out with a few other sources, and their editors finally decided that the only way they could actually prove if Casey was or wasn't telling the truth was to send two reporters to Southeast Asia with him. The three men flew first class to Hong Kong, as per Casey's instructions, and checked into the Mandarin Hotel at $50 per day per person, also as per Casey's instructions. At one point, the increasingly skeptical Times reporters gave Casey two questions to ask Patty to prove he was really in contact with her. Only she, they said, would know the answers. They had gotten both questions and answers from her cousin in San Francisco. That afternoon, with the two reporters in his hotel room, Casey received a telephone call. He kept saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, I can't remember the code. Then he scribbled something down on a piece of paper, hung up, rewrote it, translated it, and handed the paper to the reporters. On it were the correct answers to their two secret questions. The reporters were ecstatic, euphoric. Everyone shook hands and whooped with joy. Whoop, whoop. <laughs> Just like that. That was actual audio. Good job, Dave. Can't believe you got that. Hong Kong. Everything's out there, buddy. It's got nowhere to look. <laughs> but Patty Hearst was not, of course, in Hong Kong, nor Bangkok. Casey, it seems, had asked a friend to call her cousin in San Francisco and, posing as an L.A. Times reporter, asked him what the questions and answers were one more time just to make sure they have them right. By the time the dejected L.A. Times reporters were ordered home by their editors, the wild goose chase had cost the Times about (laughs) $15,000 in salary, air travel, telephone calls, hotel bills, and other assorted expenses, including a rented Rolls-Royce limousine and some clothing Casey bought in the Mandarin Hotel and charged the Times. <laughs> he really milked them, didn't he? I feel like that shit he pulled is maybe some evidence towards maybe he was like, I'm going to make something out of this Franklin scandal. I'm going to go into this. For whatever reason, he yeah, got it uh-huh. into his head for the mental institution, got himself put in as a patient, but was going around telling maybe impressionable mentally ill people yeah. hey wasn't there some sexual abuse going on there well that tracks doesn't it yeah mm. also this patty her story with casey like how is this not a movie yeah, this that's could a be, great story this could be hilarious that's great <laughs> just trolling the la times throughout all this fucking riding rolls around royce. in a rolls royce limo <laughs> buying all of these you know from like the fancy boutique shops <laughs> in the hotel lobby that's great yeah oh yeah patty she'll be here any second now you guys uh, <laughs> you guys want to go out for some dim sum or waiting <laughs> sounds good right I mean, it's there it's, time's paying for it <laughs> can we buy the rights to this sight unseen <laughs> I want this to be the first cool down media production. <laughs> Who's going to play Casey? <laughs> Who can play Michael Casey? We'll, we'll audition. We'll hold auditions. I think Declan's too old for that role. Declan doesn't. Come on. He's getting us coffee on set. Lastly, Senator Lauren Schmidt and John DeCamp may have had kind of revenge motives for pursuing the allegations that seem to based on this go back to michael casey and alicia owen and remember senator lauren schmidt was the head of the committee he came out with these allegations first publicly and then john DeCamp did his memo DeCamp was the subject of false allegations of sexual abuse in 1984 during his campaign for the u.s senate which he said was a political hit job by those in the GOP who didn't want him to win the party's nomination. The grand jury cited various interviews DeCamp did with the media in 84 as a possible motive in this, 
And they also cited issues between Senator Lauren Schmidt and the Omaha World editor, Harold Anderson, who was accused of sexually abusing children. As Senator Schmidt's motivation, the grand jury said, quote, The state brought out several reasons why Schmidt might have wanted to see Owen's version of the Franklin scandal vindicated. Schmidt testified on cross-examination that in 1984, the World Herald, published at the time by Harold Anderson, had editorialized very heavily against the video gambling industry as a whole and against Schmidt personally because of his involvement in the industry and his efforts in the legislation to protect the industry. Schmidt said he had lost a great deal of money that he had invested in a video slot machine business when the legislature outlawed the machines in 1984. (laughs) It goes back to someone not getting paid. Right. On February 1st, 1991, John DeCamp filed a civil rights suit on behalf of Paul Benashi, uh, which was against the Catholic Archbishop of Omaha, Larry King, Peter Citron, Alan Baer, Harold Anderson, Michael Hawk, and Kenneth Bavasso. This whole thing went on and on, and Noreen testified on Paul's behalf. Like we said earlier, that's where the whole sighting of Johnny from 97 came out. Okay. Um, she said that she believed everything Paul said, everything with the Franklin abuse allegations, everything is true. On February 14th, 1999, Paul Benashi was awarded a judgment of $1 million in that civil lawsuit, which is always brought up as like a see, I told you so point, like, he won a judge saw this all this evidence and decided that paul was telling the truth and he should be awarded but that is not how it played out nobody showed up to defend themselves and that's a detail that's always left out of the argument so just de facto he won yeah it's not else there did they realize that they would get a default judgment if they didn't show up yeah i don't think i think that all these people well with all that fucking money they got sitting around that endowment at boys town and they probably were like, I don't want to be involved in this shit anymore. Yeah. Fuck this. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's how all civil cases go. If you don't show up, the other person wins. Yeah. Maybe that's a good business for us. We can just start suing people and they'll take it as a joke and they won't show up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, six grand here, five grand here. We'll just sue people every day of the year. And if we're still a religion, we don't have to pay taxes on any of the money, <laughs> <That's> right? right. <laughs> Let's go to our big endowment. Yeah. There's also another thing about Michael Casey I forgot to bring up real quick. Um, in 70, I believe it was 74 before he pulled that shit with the LA times, he worked for boys town and he stole a bunch of documents from boys town. Oh, and he attempted to sell those to a guy that was making a documentary. Interesting. So, and he was fired by boys town. They were, they were not happy with him at all. Mm. So there might be a little, Revenge on Boys Town too, possibly. That's uh, seems like a motive, and it also a possible motive. points to him trying to maybe break into a journal. You know, some type of you know break into being a journalist. You bust a big story like that, getting your name out there. Sure, yeah. There's a there's something going on here. There's a lot of something going on. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm not exactly sure what, but there's <laughs> something. So in 1993, there was a documentary called Conspiracy of Silence that was made. Uh, UK-based Yorkshire TV filmed it. Then at the last second, Discovery Channel pulled the plug and reimbursed Yorkshire TV. A couple weeks later, John DeCamp was supposedly sent an unedited copy in the mail by an anonymous sender 
which is now available on YouTube. You can watch it. People point to it. They're like, you know, John DeCamp's on here talking. Troy Bonner's on here talking. Um, they go into all the Boys Town stuff that we talked about, all the sexual yeah. abuse. So people are like, oh, you know, Discovery pulled the plug and why would they still pay Yorkshire, you know? What was it called like, again? Conspiracy of Silence. Maybe that's what their contract said. They didn't distribute it. They had to pay him back. That seems to make sense. Is the quality yeah, really bad? Like maybe sense. it just wasn't up to their standards. They have fucking Shark Week. Discovery? For they're just Christ's like, sake. Yeah, they're not like, going <laughs> to play any old thing on that network. I, I mean, I think that this grand jury ruling that happened in 1993, that it had something to do with yeah. this because it was pulled the same year. I, I think maybe Discovery Channel was like, yeah, we're not going to run all this stuff that if a grand jury ruled against okay. it. That makes sense, too. They could have. Yeah, they could have just saw that as bad PR and they're like, eh, this we don't want to touch. This we don't want to get sued. Yeah. 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 Can you get someone on the phone from Discovery? Can we uh, can we confirm that? Yeah. Declan. <laughs> Discovery Channel. <laughs> Tell them it's from Necro. They'll know. Is it credible? Is it not credible? What did you think? I think it's credible. I think if you knew nothing about this and then watched it, yeah. you would leave it being like, God damn, what the fuck is going on out in Omaha? I still ask that right now. What the fuck <laughs> is going on out in Omaha? I don't know. Warren Buffet serving a bunch of food. That's what's going on. That sounds all right. That sounds all right. <laughs> on August 27, 2006, Noreen received an unmarked envelope at her front door that contained multiple photographs of young boys tied up, as well as a picture of a man who appeared to be dead with a ligature tied around his neck. John DeCamp claims to have received the same pictures that day, as well as a man who Noreen and DeCamp will not name. There was a picture of three fully clothed boys tied up on a bed, one of which she says was Johnny. And then there are some other pictures of that boy alone that Noreen you know, says that those pictures to her are Johnny. But honestly, I can't. I don't think it's the same boy. No. No, um, there's also some other pictures that Noreen published to her website that are probably the worst pictures I've ever seen on the internet because you know it's not natural to be looking at a picture of a boy tied up. Mm. You know what I mean? Like you know what's going to happen at the end of that picture. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And I didn't. So she posted these on her website. All of them. That's how I saw them on the way back machine. She just has them on the front too. Like there's no warning. Um, but I'm sure you guys don't want to see all of them. I didn't want to save. Sure I didn't want to save them on my computer and then text them out. But just so we can scroll through. All right. So the first one we talked about was the boys that were tied up. She says that one on the very. You can see where she says Johnny. Gosh. Which one? Oh, right there. Not really. You can't tell. It's it's really grainy too. Yeah, you can't tell. Um, and then this is the one of the boy alone that she says is that same boy, and it's Johnny. It does look like the same kid. I don't think it's Johnny though. Does not look like him to me. There's other pictures, but this is a mm. pretty clear one. That doesn't look like Johnny. I don't think. I don't remember what Johnny looked like, so I can't really say. I'm trying to think more if it looked like the boy in the first picture. 
I'm Chris Hansen with Dateline NBC. I, I think he's Chris Hansen. Got to look at that laptop of yours. Ian. He's here to visit you. What's in the trunk of your car? And you got any rope? Condoms, zip ties, pizza, six pack of Mike's Hard Lemonade, and some Taco Bell. I was thinking of how to show you guys these pictures. I'm like, I'm not saving these to my computer. I don't think that's a good idea to be texting these out. Yeah. No, there's no nudity on her no, on her no. website, and that's you know. How hilarious would it be if you sent Dave and I those two photos in our group thread and then there was just a fourth group and it said FBI and it was like, oh boy. (laughs) (laughs) Screenshot. (laughs) Be like, well played, FBI, well played. I think the worst picture out of all the stuff we ever looked at was the girl that Issei Sagawa ate. The pictures of what was left of her is one of the most disgusting things I've ever seen. Man, I don't really remember those very clearly. It was awful. Didn't we see photos, too, of those guys that were in, like, the upstairs bedroom being tortured? That wasn't Robert Berdella, was it? Uh, Sounds right. Like a guy jumped out of an upstairs Mm -hmm. bedroom. He he would tie him to the beds. Didn't we see photos from that one, too? I believe there was an afterwards Mm, photo. I I remember something with people on beds that. I don't remember what store it was, but it was always stuck with me, the photo. I don't know, though. Yeah, there's a picture in here of a boy tied up in a dirty basement. And the way he's tied, every it's just so not right. Yeah. And it's, yeah. Noreen should have had, like, a warning somewhere. Not just blast these on the front of her page, but. Right. Well, and there might be an explanation for these pictures, right? Well, at least for the one with the the boys that were clothed, tied up. On September 13th, 2006, the West Des Moines Police Department received an anonymous letter postmarked from Tampa, Florida that said, quote, Gentlemen, someone has played a reprehensible joke on a grieving mother. The photo in question is not one of her son, but of three boys in Tampa, Florida, about 1979-1980, challenging each other to an escape contest. There was an investigation concerning that picture made by the Hillsborough County, Florida Sheriff's Office. No charges were filed and no wrongdoing was established. The lead detective on the case was named Zalva. This allegation should be easy enough to check out. Nelson Zalva was an investigator at the Florida State Attorney's Office who told police that the photos were actually from a case he investigated between 1978 and 1979. According to Salva, someone, possibly one of the boy's parents maybe, had found the pictures and notified the police, who then started the investigation. Salva said that he managed to identify the boys in the pictures, who explained that they were taken by a man in the neighborhood who tied them up um, with their consent as part of an escape contest, and he promised them fireworks in return. So if that's, that's weird by itself, yeah, that's that sounds just as weird. That's like a John Wayne Gacy kind of yeah. thing. Those boys in that picture did not look happy. They didn't look thrilled like no. they were playing a game. Mm-hmm. Why, why is your shirt off? Is that part of the escape contest? Well, no, that's not. That's just that the one with a, the boys with their with their clothes on. The one with the three on the oh, back, right, they, they were all clothed. That's right. That's right. The, this is going so it's off only of, that one singular picture that he's claiming. Okay. Yeah. The other ones are, are not, and not part of that. And I don't think that they are. The camera looks way different. Mm. It's the, the one with the shirt off tied up. It looks like it's probably shot maybe in the early two thousands, even mm. with the clarity of yeah. the camera. 
but Noreen doesn't see it that way. I think that she's just blinded by years of being led down rabbit holes. But like everything in this case, Salva's story has been questioned because no incident report or any reports pertaining to the case or even proof that the photos were ever part of a case handled by the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office has ever been put forth. There's never been any records found. So the story told by Salva and the anonymous letter writer can't be confirmed like everything else in this story. Salva could be the anonymous letter writer. Could be. Going into business for himself. Sure. So we'll wrap this up with a guy named Jeff Gannon. Noreen fully believes that Jeff Gannon is her son, Johnny Gosh. Really? 100% believes this. So this all kicked off on January 26, 2005. This guy named Jeff Gannon was at a White House briefing and asked President George W. a question that um, it got all the journalists there going. Like It was such a softball question that they thought he was like a planted person. Like He had to be planted mm. by somebody. So he worked for a conservative news outlet called Talent News. And because the question was so um, stuck out so much, people started looking into who Jeff Gannon was. Jeff Gannon. I remember this now. This is this was a, very familiar. Yeah. This was kind of a big deal for a second. Mm-hmm. His real name is James Guckert. Guckert? Yep. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> he was in a male escort. Um, Sounding more familiar. Yep. He did not have any journalism thing. He took like this, just this little class type thing. Like he, there was no reason that he, had no he should. No background, no credentials to be. Right. Doing that. Just another con man doing his thing. Uh-huh. So how does this all tie in? Ted Gunderson, a former FBI agent, after he retired, he decided that he was going to make a name for himself in a business like a prototype of Alex Jones. Okay. It's going to be a conspiracy, you know, peddle his ideas, whatever. Pays well. It does. There is a business out there for it. Part of what Paul Benashi said was that there were boys from Boys Town and and other places, part of this this big sex ring, that were flown in to Washington, D.C., which that ties in to Jeff Gannon. Yeah. That he would have been... Part of this this sex ring stuff going uh-huh. on, Jeff Gannon was approached and asked directly if he was Johnny Gosh, and he shut the door. Hmm. Person's face. He doesn't want to talk about this at all, any of the Johnny Gosh stuff. But Ted Gunderson has Noreen convinced that Jeff Gannon is Johnny Gosh, and he just can't expose himself hmm. and can't just come forward because the threat of everything with this this child sex ring and the powerful people behind it. Mm. You know what she's got to do? It's easily provable. Just go like in his trash and get a piece of chewing gum, pull the DNA off of there. And we can confirm or deny the accuracy of this claim. How about that? Pretty simple. Get Maury back and call him back. <laughs> yeah, recall right. him. Recall <laughs> Maury from what, retirement. That would be a huge episode. Get can your you cock imagine? out of Connie Chung. There's work to do, Maury. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be ratings through the roof. Would. Prime time, I think he should get for that one. 
So how did Jeff Gannon get credentialed to the White House? I remember this story now a little bit. He just kind of, from what it sounded like, he just scammed his way in there. Another fake it till you make it. That's awesome. Thing. Good for you, Jeff Gannon. That, that's the end of the disappearance of Johnny Gosh. No answers. I forgot we were talking no about Johnny Gosh during this episode yeah, at one point. Right. The only thing that we can say for sure is that Johnny Gosh disappeared in 82 when he was delivering newspapers. Along with other another... Yeah, Eugene Martin. Martin. Yeah. I feel really bad for Noreen. I think Noreen was just so desperate to find out what happened to her son that people with ulterior motives and things led her down a rabbit hole. And then anybody else interested in the case or, you know, yeah. just kind of followed her down the rabbit hole and at the end of it, like you said, we barely even talked about Johnny Gosh. It's this is so convoluted and because his name now is so associated with this Franklin cover up story. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like you have to to do that, whether you believe in the Franklin cover up stuff or not, they kind of go hand in hand if you're telling the story of Johnny Gosh. Noreen also let herself be, you know, involved with like David Ike throws his hat into this whole thing. Is that the reptilian guy? Mm-hmm. The idea of pedophilia happening with the world's elite is like a, a base for a lot of these conspiracy theories. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Pizza, Wait, Gate. pizza Gate. I was going to say Pizza Gate. Does it happen? Of course it happens. There's definitely sex trafficking. Epstein proves that. You know, is there like a smoking gun there that someone like Bill Clinton was involved? There's there's no smoking gun. Yeah. Personally, I do not believe anything regarding the Franklin cover up. Maybe the Boys Town stuff. There could be some truth to that angle. All this stuff regarding Johnny Gosh. I just personally, I don't believe it. I believe it's possible. I don't believe it goes up as high as maybe people say it does or uh anything like that so maybe it's possible and if so then he certainly could have been a part of that but Um, i don't feel strongly that it it exists based on i mean but again i only know what we discussed today i've never really deep dived or researched the franklin cover-up i'm sure there's people out there who are all into it yeah i mean there's pro there's definitely a lot of pro franklin cover franklin cover-up stuff you can uh there's a guy named nick bryant that wrote a book on it there's john DeCamp's book obviously the franklin cover-up that kicked it all off yeah i think there's a lot of nonsense going on with the franklin cover-up stuff whether it was the revenge aspect whether it was maybe even michael casey creating this out of thin air i you know something crazy is going on can you imagine if he did create that all out of thin air plus he's going to fucking hong kong and yeah. in the la times he's like, like puppet master pulling all the strings he's up there with like db cooper type like shit like that's a yeah. that's a legend that's a hero right there so yeah i'm not buying any of that stuff the, the problem that i have with it too is when your source information is getting you to a point where you're on rents.com I don't know if you're familiar with rents.com. It's a very like far right rents. Yeah. R E N S E.com. Oh no. I don't have no idea what that is. So it's a very, I wouldn't even say conservative. It's a, it's a very radical website. A lot of anti-Semitic stuff, tons of David Icke, 
Ted Gunderson, all the, like I have an article pulled up here about Noreen Gosh speaks out. Jeff Gannon, Johnny Gosh, and the attempted theft of her book, Why Johnny Gosh Can't Come Home. And it's all this stuff about MK Ultra mm. d- d- craziness. Yeah. Look, we know people in this country are prone to believing some wild shit. So. And there's money to be made. I Yeah. There just is. Ted Gunderson made money off of Noreen Gosh with this shit. Alex Jones made tons of money off of the Sandy Hook. Absolutely. And then Art Bell made a ton of money off aliens. It's all in how you do it. If you want to be a piece of shit and make up things about, you know, people's loved ones and stuff, or if you want to do it fun and innocent. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. I think it's possible that Johnny got sold into some type of a ring. That's a hundred percent possible. Sure it is. Do I think that he ended up entrenched into this ring where he became the go between in helping this ring or like keeping this whole thing together where he couldn't reveal the truth and all this stuff. No, no, that just sounds silly. And I know people talk about the, the, the ranch in Colorado where the kids were supposedly kept because Paul Benashi, they go to an America, America's most wanted. They go to, uh, they go to a ranch. They don't say what ranch on TV, but they go to a ranch and Paul says that there were, the kids were kept underneath this area and they would carve their names in the, in the wood. We talked about that in part one. When they went, there were names carved, but that doesn't prove anything yeah. because that Michael Casey guy had the correct answers for the LA times because he, you know, scammed his way into that. Yeah. He could easily say, like, when they got there and there were no names, they're like, oh, they must have changed it. Or Yeah. What constitutes proof these days is sort of a fluid idea and not necessarily, you know. Yeah. What you would consider proof. But there, like I said, there's pro stuff out there. There's books. There's, you know, there's all kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I just, I can't, I can't do it. They start bringing in Hunter S. Thompson into stuff with oh like boy. making snuff films. It just, and that's what, that's the stuff that I cut out because yeah. we can't get into it. And then you really miss the whole point of Johnny Gosh. Super interesting. You could spend a lifetime trying to figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll put this in the, uh, we did not solve this category. I, the kid was probably dead within 24 hours. That's the most likely outcome. I think maybe they could have done something if the police chief wasn't such an asshole. Well, they certainly didn't get off to a good start. Yeah, for sure. Something that could have happened is, you know, Eugene Martin was taken two years almost to the day. Maybe there was just some, a Dean Coral type that was just getting started. Mm -hmm. Got Johnny and was like, okay, I got away with that. Let me try that again. That's what his dad believes, right? Like his dad thinks it was just like kind of a one-off thing, not part of like a whole ring or a, 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 a trade or anything like that. Just um, a pedophile out there who abducted his kid and probably killed him. It's likely, but again, anything's possible. It's not going to know. Yeah, I mean, if we did a show on the Ariel Castro stuff, before Amanda Berry exactly. was found, we would be like, oh, yeah, she's probably dead somewhere. Exactly right. Right. So who knows? But I feel bad for Noreen at the end of the day, though. I think that she's been taken advantage of by some, Clearly, yeah. by some very um, 
early versions of Alex Jones. And most of the people involved in this are dead now, too. Really? Ted Gunderson's dead. John DeCamp's dead. So, the Bonner guy died kind of mysteriously. I was looking at some of that documentary stuff, too. Yeah, with the... Well, his brother got shot. Brother got shot. Yeah. So there's some there's some things that are interesting. That's what I mean. All we know for 100% is that when Johnny started walking away from that corner down towards Marquardt Street... It starts getting muddy yeah. with eyewitness accounts right yeah. there. That's where it stops. It's probably all we're ever gonna know. And then there's fucking Sam Soda. Sam Soda looked exactly like the yeah, composite yeah. sketch. I forgot about old Mister Soda. Bob. That's why you get it gets so lost. Yeah. Once you get to the Franklin stuff and but Paul then Benaggi. if you say Sam was involved and then he comes back and you know contacts the victim's mother and directly inserts himself into the situation like right. who the fuck what's the point of that and then paul bishop the supposed cia agent that turned out to be a convicted it, pedophile yeah there's just so many weird odds and ends about this story yeah this is one of the weirdest most complicated stories we've ever done including yeah. all of the the theories and yeah shit. yeah all right anything else on this one <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I could talk about it forever now. It, this is the first one in a while that I've just wanted to like sit around and just talk about it because that's all that was on my mind. Yeah. You know? And some of it, Angie was just like listening to what I was saying. It's like, I, I don't know who any of these people are you're talking about. You're just kind of jumping right in in the middle of the story. Yeah. Go to bed, fuck boy. I have no idea what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> talk about it in your sleep. <laughs> all right. Well, speaking of talking about people. Dave's got some people to talk about. I have some new patrons. Thank you to Christy, Blake Casey, Matthew Murphy, Megan, the Clint is real, Lionel Andrade, Henry Rankin, Autumn, Matthew Weisenberger, Ellie Day, Matthew Hawley, Cameron Owens, Garth Running, Joe Devoren. Chicks dig Mike thirty seven oh eight. Thanks. I like when people put random numbers behind stuff, like it's a nineteen ninety nine username. <laughs> Jennifer Plant, Craven Moorhead. Look at that! Not bad, sir. Papa Woody. Also not bad, sir. <laughs> Ashley Palacios. Schmegma in your eye. <laughs> very nice. Very nice. Schmegma in your eye. I like it. That's have good. We, have we had that one before? I don't know. That sounds familiar. Know, does it? Christina Williams, Caroline Kane, Pete Jepson, Bitch Whiskers, Autumn Ray, Paul Hobbs, Chris, Sally Bird, Naya, Aniva, it's Shell, DreamWorks, SKG, B-Movie, 83007, final version. This material is the property of DreamWorks Pictures. <laughs> Somebody cut and pasted something. <laughs> and is intended and restri- ran out of characters. Oh. <laughs> All right. Yeep. Sherbert, 24799. <laughs> Scotty B. Sky Headline. JR vomits on you. Is that like a business? He can call him and come over and vomit on you. There you go. Like draws. Bob Kern, yeah. Natalie Waters, 
Jensen McLeod, Mark Schweikert, Daniel Johnson, Crystal Merritt, Jack Kinmeoff. Ah, see what he did there? <laughs> Clayton Carter, Jacques Mouton, Emily Haynes, Blake Estep, Jimmy, Taint Pinching Nipple Flicker. It's Mike's best friend. It's aggressive. Clay K, Case Brown, Sarah M, Mackenzie Barnes, Chris, Carl Dale, Cynthia Schwank, and Necronama Bitch. Thank you, new patrons, for your support. Uh, Ian. For iTunes, I have one for Colton N, Panda Bear Bush, listening since 2021, Aspen McKenzie, Jock Peter Malton, and Michaela3760. Thank you guys for the awesome reviews. Dave, what do you got? I've got one military shout-out to uh, Marine Vet David Lee Shock, who himself wanted to send a shout-out to all his brothers and sisters who paid the ultimate price. Should have been in last week's show. Uh, I neglected it you know, prior to Memorial Day. but oh, uh, And we scalded people, too, for... Uh for not getting us any uh, Memorial Day shout outs. That was my that was my fault. It was did. sitting up on my desk, so. so you need a scolding. Better late than never. So thank you for your service. Thank you. All right. We are on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, the talk tick at Necronomapod, Patreon.com, search or slash Necronomapod, Amazon.com, search Necronomapod for all of our merch and Necronomapod.com. Uh, uh, to get our stickers. We have individuals and three packs available. Hey, I have something on that. I keep hearing from people that they have trouble finding the show on Patreon. And we've always talked about it's adult content and it's the search function doesn't work. It works for me every time. So I'm Maybe because you already have Patreon, did you like update your settings to adult settings? No, or? just like on a, a blank you know, search window or uh, an app that's not logged in. It's, but it, it comes back every time. If you put like, if you're on your phone and put patreon.com in your web browser, you should find it or like into your browser and then just like open in the app and it should take you to our page then. Yeah. Cause the I don't link, know if you the link s- works, but if, okay. if anytime I go to the app, just logged out and search for us, it comes back. It I've never seen that a search like on there that doesn't work. So but people know. have always told us they can't find. Yeah, it, so. it, it works fine right, for well, me. Maybe so try I'm not sure. Just searching us on Patreon, but if not, patreon.com slash Necronomapod. Yeah, yeah. Don't want you to miss out on all that great bonus content that's available. <laughs> It'll be a big month. Closing it off with our uh, second live Zoom show. That's true. People can watch us do a uh, bonus episode. We're the coolest thing ever. So that's a lot of fun, right? Yeah. I guess watching three middle-aged white guys sit around and talk about the weather. <laughs> kind of fast food did you have this week? Yeah, right. <laughs> Before we go, don't yell at me in the comment section on this episode on Instagram or on Patreon. This is just where the research took me. <laughs> or Twitter I know or that, Facebook or anything. I right? know that there are some very passionate people out here that believe in this conspiracy mm-hmm. theory and stuff. So don't yell at me. I know. I read it. This is just what I think and what happened. But That also reminds me of another point. I was seeing people commenting, was it last week or the week before, about we mentioned those convicted sex offenders that people name that we weren't going to name. They're like, well, that's the reason for being a sex offender, so you can find them. Yeah, they may have been sex offenders, but we're not going to name them as a suspected 
they or as a suspect in this case. Yeah, as like a suspect in this case with no proof. Like, that's not the same thing. You can't do that. Yeah, that's not. We're not here to do that. So that's why if we, we were, were naming those people. Their specific offenses, we would have named them. Yeah, but that's that wasn't the discussion. It's just rumor and innuendo, as people like to say. Yeah, that's like if we were doing a cold case here and, you know, and we just looked up all the registered sex offenders in that area of that case and just started just listing them all. <laughs> you can't do that. <laughs> I mean, you can, but it's not a very nice thing to do. There's going to be repercussions. I mean, probably. you can back into it and say, I don't think convicted sex offender so-and-so right. is involved in this in any way. <laughs> <laughs> You're covered saying that. So. But then with this story, do it, it just but... didn't make any sense. Like there no, wasn't a no. need for it. So. All right. That's all I got on that. All right. You guys ready for a cool down beer? Cheers. <laughs>